everybody to that time of the week where I feel like I didn't let my parents down because I sound like I'm on the radio. The radio was played in my parents' car, and it was such a wonderful thing. This is Sad Times. I'm your host, Kevin. Now, for those of you who have never been to hear Sad Times before, let me give you a quick primer. Sad Times, each week we have a guest who comes on and talks about difficult times in their lives when they were stressed out, angry, upset, overwhelmed, uh, when they made decisions based on emotion, when they were just having really hard times in their lives. Because we at Sad Times believe that while we all go through these things, not everybody talks about them. And the hope here is is we have these kind and generous guests who come on each week. These guests will tell their stories so that you at home can listen and maybe hear something that makes you feel a little less alone and then maybe spurs you to tell uh, some of your more difficult stories to people so that we can all be a little bit more empathetic. So that's what Sad Times is. Uh, Let's first get to our sponsor this week. Uh, Just one sponsor this week. It is Ronald Reagan Chesterfield cigarette ads. Hey, at least in this advertisement, he's clear about his intentions to harm people. But what a winning smile. So winning, he could not only sell cigarettes, but also ketchup as a vegetable. Okay. All right. Great. Uh, (laughs) As a reminder, everybody... Please support our sponsors. Just go and type in F-A-K-E. That's F-A-K-E. And, uh, you know, we we couldn't do this without our sponsors, so please support them. All right, let's get to today's guest, a gentleman I have just met uh, a couple weeks ago named Scott. Scott, how's it going, man? Hey, how are you, man? Going good, going good. Oh, man, I'm doing all right myself as well. Uh, I will say for everybody, since this is an audio medium, that's a badass Beatles shirt you have on there. Oh, yeah, Abbey Road, man. I was very fortunate to get to see Abbey Road not too long ago. Over, oh yeah, I've been there too. Did you do? Did you uh, make everybody on the road mad as you walked across the street? <laughs> yeah, you can't not do that, right? Got to. Yep. Um, how long ago did you go there? Uh, two thousand eighteen, before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It was probably just the year before the pandemic, or a year or two before. Okay. We uh, it was a clerk's thing. It was the um, MC. Oh gosh, I hate to blow the name of the cons. One of their bigger cons, obviously, if they're going to have all of us out there. Yeah, that's a, you know, cause that's a lot of people, a lot of international plane tickets. But it was about four or five of us from the movie. Uh, as before Clerks Three, so it was yeah, like 2018, 2019. I didn't really get to do much. Other than the crosswalk at Abbey Road, because yeah. it was after hours, and because we were there for the car, you know, the con, mm-hmm. we had to do con hours, you know. Right, and yeah, you know, you brought it up. So let's. Uh, you said clerk. So who did you play in Clerk, Scott? I played the Chulies Gum Guy, the incorrigible Chulies Gum Guy. Who, <laughs> in the script, he's not. In the script, he was called the activist. Oh, really? Yeah. In years gone by, uh, because of the nature of the scene, it just became the Julie's Gum Guy. Everybody started, hey, Julie's Gum Guy, Julie's Gum Guy, Julie's Gum Guy. But the name of the character when Kevin wrote the script was The Activist. Okay. It, man, and I just rewatched Clerks uh, this past week, and it's so funny, and you get everybody call, like calling everybody or calling Dante a Nazi and all that good stuff. Uh, it's good stuff, man. Good stuff. So, are where are you from? Are you from J- New Jersey? Yeah, I'm a Jersey guy. I always have been. Um, born in Passaic, New Jersey, and not too far from there as an adult. Basically, I grew up in Garfield, New Jersey. Is that northern or southern New Jersey? It's north. We're we're like ten, fifteen minutes from the Bridger Tunnel. Oh wow! Okay, right on. Hence all my shuttling in and out of there at different points yes yes sometimes for good sometimes for nefarious reasons yeah and which we will definitely uh get to so you you grew up in new jersey you're you're you still live in new jersey now yes okay cool um and so obviously we covered clerks but you've been in a number of movies and you've also been a, a musician for a number of years right yeah you know music is the first real true first passion and love. Um, it's a strange story, actually. I 
in my 20s, I was really doing the music thing after college pretty hard, you know, playing in the clubs, had an original band. We were showcasing for record labels. But I I got bounced out of my band for my drinking. I had a horrific drinking oh. problem for years and years, which we'll talk about, I know. But but anyway, I what I did was I pivoted from music back to acting in my late 20s. Now, granted, 28 is not that old. Now that I'm almost 60, I look back at 28, I was a kid. But back then, you know, people would be like, what would you spend your 20s, you know, leading up to your 30s? I got out of the music thing for a while because I, I didn't want to drag another band of people down. I knew the drinking was bad. I thought somehow I'd be able to manage it as a character actor, stay sober long enough to do the audition, long enough for the shoot. Mm -hmm. And then if I screwed up, I didn't mess everybody's worlds up. Like, uh, of course, that was very faulty thinking because if you blow a movie set, you're going to, you know, ruin it. it. But thankfully, I didn't. Oh, oh, good. That's good. Hey, what did you play? Did you play guitar in the band? I played guitar. I was one of the, I was the main guitar player and uh, one of the songwriters. It was myself and a guy named Jack Fellers. Guy named Dave Biglin, who's a phenomenal musician, was part of that outfit. Who's a professional musician to this day? He's played with just about everybody under the sun on the East Coast, and he plays guitar and keyboards. And uh, he used to be Art Garfunkel's musical director on the road. Oh wow! He was very, very accomplished. He was uh, working with him was amazing. But uh, they they were right. I had to get out. We, we were showcasing for Sony. We were about to showcase for Sony Records. Uh-huh. I just knew I was not to be. I just they couldn't really rely on me. I'd blow important things. I'd you know I'd be in a. We opened up for Dave Mason, and like the night before the show, I was in detox. Oh wow! Like um, I broke de- I broke out of detox to play the Dave Mason you, show. You broke out of detox to well, play. I broke out. Left. Hard. You left. What they call that the infamous AMA. Against medical advice, which I've done ah, right. dozens of times in my okay. life. Okay. And how long were you in this band? How long was I in the band? Yeah. Uh, probably from 23 to 27, 20, 23 years old, 22 years old to 27, 28. What? Uh, okay. Gotcha. So what got you into music to want to be a musician in the first place? Oh, man. I, for as long as I can remember, I had an older cousin uh, a broken, a broken family, single mom. My father wasn't around. Um, my older cousin was like a father figure, older brother. He was a big music head. And, uh, you know, four or five years old, they got me a, a turntable and a stack of 45s. Oh, cool. And it was just love, you know, like I, there was something there calling deeply. Like once I found music, and once I really found the guitar, that it was just like, bam. So I, it's just for as long as my own longest memories are mostly musical. And then the acting mm-hmm. when I was a little more of a getting to be an adult. Was it the, so I, I like to think of rock and roll. Um, it's like the purest expression of freedom. It's one of the purest expressions of freedom that I know of in in any of its forms, punk, whatever it may be. Was it that that drew you to it? Was it the the freedom of it? What drew you to the music when you were so young? Man, I don't know. You know, I heard, I know I, I, I've heard Dylan say this, but certain sounds, certain records just made me feel like I was somewhere else and someone else. For oh, that time. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, music would really transcend everything. And it was like a magical world that once you got into that music, you were transformed into, you know, it was like an altered state without drugs, really. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And you, you, you mentioned earlier, or like a minute ago, that you came from a single parent household. Your dad wasn't around. Did you ever know your dad or see your dad? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a torrid story, but it had a happy ending. Um, my, my dad recently passed. Oh, I'm last sorry. Fall. He had a good run. You know, he was like 95. 
Ooh, and the last yeah. 20 years of his life, he and I had a good relationship and we had a relationship. Mm-hmm. But the first 40 years of my life, we didn't. Um, he he had a bad drinking problem. You know, he had a drinking problem. And as a kid, you know, he had shown up at the apartment a couple of times, really tuned up. And it left such a mar, you know, like it was, it, there was some violence involved. Not, not really, I know a lot of people have it worse. I mean, I wasn't beaten, but there mm-hmm. was shoving around and furniture getting knocked over and a lot of yelling. And, you know, when you're four years old and my father was a formidable man, uh-huh. handsome, amazing singer, but drunk, he was a maniac, obviously like most drunks. So I just went scurrying under the bed for hours and I wouldn't come out. And those memories were actually kind of, I was reminded of those not that long ago because they were really buried. Yeah. But, um, you know, I wonder why I grew up with anxiety and afraid of the world. You know, I mean, if a child gets that kind of intro now, I, I'm not about, some kind of harsh blame. I I had a real problem with him for years. He was a difficult man, even when he was sober, but I love him very much. And he, he came to mean a lot to me towards the end of his life. And now in the middle ending him, you know, my forties and fifties and sixties. So, and I have my beautiful partner, Carrie to thank for that because she became like a conduit between he and I, and we'd go there for dinner and he'd make big Italian dinners and sing. He was an amazing singer. I mean, he, I'm not just saying that. He was this close to having his own career. Oh, wow. Uh, I have tons of his records. He did all the standards. You know, like a Bennett, a real type of Bennett. Yeah. It, Rest in peace. Lost, yeah. So, but it was a rough start with that. You know, I, all I knew of him for the first 10 or so years was those horrible incidents. And... um it definitely left a deep mark. And I, unfortunately, I think a lot of, I've known a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts in my life. I've been in a thousand rehabs. I've been all around recovery. I've got a master's degree in, in uh, <laughs> mental health counseling and addiction is uh, one of the special areas. But, you know, a lot of kids say, I'm never going to be like him. Never going to be like that. Uh, that's the last thing I'm going to do. And I was worse. I mean, my father was a generation of drinking, you know. Right. It was alcohol and then whatever else I could throw in my face. So I ended up being worse, in my opinion. And I think I think the record would reflect if you really <laughs> saw my history. It was pretty dark for years with the booze and the drugs. But um, again, man, like I, if you were to talk to me in a different period in my life, I might not have talked about it or I might have been really blaming him and he was a piece of this and that. Right. But I really made peace with that. And although now I really look back and respect just how much damage was probably really done. And I, I no longer question why I've had a life of filled with anxiety. And, you know, I had a lot of un, uh, un, not, not, Fears that I couldn't. What's the word I'm looking for, brother? You know what I'm talking yeah, about. The fears that you couldn't qu- uh, qu- uh, quench. You couldn't get them to go away. I, um, uh, I'm zoning. There's a specific word I wanted. But okay. It's eluding me. But, you know, when you have fears that you can't define or whatever. Um, That's so true about anxiety, too, man. It's sometimes yeah. it's just a yeah. Obviously, anxiety is a feeling, but man, it it can be overwhelming. And sometimes you're like, I don't even know what the, what am I fucking worried about now? But it it just overcomes you. Yeah, and then the racing mind, you know, I uh, I've had a lot of, for lack of a better term, because everybody will put the OCD label on it. Thankfully, I was never so filled with rituals that I was washing my hands a hundred times mm-hmm. or locking unlocking the door 12 times or whatever and i'm i'm not trying to be i am poking a little fun at it but it's a horrible thing i 
but I had OCD where I would ruminate on things. Yes, sir. Go through scenarios in my mind and then relive things. And I do like things really orderly. You know, that's a control thing with me. You know, I like things where they belong and I like neatness and orderliness. And that's for almost half my adult life. My my life was chaos when I drank. So you get sober and all of a sudden everything's got to be just right. And then bam, everything's a giant blackout, you know, and I'm waking up in another state, you know. Well, when you. Literally another. Another state. state? Pennsylvania or Connecticut. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, but when you would start drinking, okay, let's just get into the drinking. When you would start in the evening, those first couple drinks, was it something where it was like, okay, that is helping my anxiety right away. I'm feeling calmer. Or was it like, I'm going to just drink, 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 because I want to get to a point where I'm, uh, you know, blacking out type of thing. No, I think it became that over time, but it was never, it was always something for effect. And like, I remember one of the first times I drank as a teenager because mm-hmm. I was really scared of it as a younger guy. Because of your school. dad? I'm not completely sure. It was just because of my dad. I was really, uh, I was a chubby, unathletic, geeky kid who thankfully had his guitar and a couple of good friends and a great mother. But I, you know, I, I, I didn't take horrible abuse, but in my day, there was a lot of the jocks would be, you know, pushing up on the geeky fat kid who can't do a chin up or whatever. I'm like in high school. And one of the first times I drank, I remember as soon as the buzz hit and the same thing happened with just about every other drug I tried. But as soon as the buzz hit, it was like, ah, you know, like that. It was like I found whatever, Allah, and then just doing all you can to make it better or more or keep it going. I got really sick. I get 14. Uh, You know, like when you first get drunk when you're that young, the next day you're throwing up and you're never going to drink again. Right. But um, but I did not do a lot of drinking in high school as a teenager. My hardcore stuff happened after high school, ushering into college. As soon as I hit my early 20s, it's just it kick-started into like oblivion. Yeah, and you know, you you mentioned that you it's a hy- hyperbolic, but you know, you've been to thousands of rehabs and uh one thing you said to me when we spoke before was that you're kind of taught in 12-step programs that you need to be brutally honest if you want to get sober. Is that is that right? You know, that actually that um ideology really stuck with me. Not in all the best of ways, meaning I think I always was a very open, candid person. I'm not sure why I, I'm not sure why, Mm -hmm. Um, but I always felt it was better to just tell all the truth as ugly as it was than to have to hide some kind of lie and, and whatever, somehow that, but then when you hit the 12 step programs, which I, I give them a, Tremendous credit and props and anybody who's getting sober through that. That's wonderful. I would never knock it. I've been through a lot of it. I don't particularly do that route today. Uh, Sober 17 years from alcohol. But that brutal honesty that I know was really, you'll never stay sober unless you're brutally honest. That really drove a spike in there. Mm -hmm. I feel like at times... I, I could meet somebody for 10 minutes and I'm telling them about how I drank shoe polish. You drank shoe polish? I actually drank shoe polish as a child by accident. Okay. okay. But oh, I was like four years old, right? My mother thinks I thought it was milk. It was white. That would not be the first time I would drink something that was not meant to be imbibed. You well, know, I mean, the list is endless. It's vanilla extract, Listerine. You know, I drank Windex, uh, thank you, cocaine, um, witch hazel, rubbing alcohol, aftershave. You know, when you can't bring a bottle of aftershave into a rehab, it's for alcoholics that get as bad as me. That's the reason why. So that that is a if for somebody who is a very um, severe alcoholic, I guess we'll use that word. They will drink aftershave. Is, that's that's just a common thing that is known. 
Well, if you're if it's four o'clock in the morning, yeah, and you're shaking and getting the DTS, you'll drink anything to make that stop because that kind of withdrawal is what well, could kill you. Well, you don't think of that. I mean, I, all the things I've done that. No, 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 no. The the withdrawal oh. could kill you, not the oh, not yes, the aftershave. No. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't really know that at the time. Yeah, yeah. I would, you would wish it would kill you. Yeah. It would be so awful, man. You know, but especially when you added all that blow to the mix. I mean, now you're shaking from lack of alcohol. You're flipping out because there's no more blow. And yeah, it was, oh God, I, I'm so thankful from the bottom of my heart that by some amazing grace, and I have weirdnesses with my spirituality. So I have a hard time putting a label on that weirdness of grace, but I got some kind of blessing because I had it so bad that there was no way I was going to stop without being stopped. Mm-hmm. My life without it. I hated my life without it. I well, the most miserable dry drunk that ever lived. Well, what do you mean by that? Like you would, you just were in a bad mood or what does that well, mean? Not only a bad mood, but you know, like if I, I walk my dog, uh, I literally would be staring at the liquor store, standing on a corner watching people coming and going and getting furious that they could all go in and buy a bottle. And I got to stay sober. Like I was that obsessed with not having it, Uh which was just another sick obsession in OCD or whatever. But I was, I had it so bad that I, I realized at one point, man, I'm just going to, I'm going to go with this and I'm going to die from it. I'm probably going to die from it. And I just, by, by my end of my twenties into my thirties, you know, anybody who was close to me, they were all probably waiting for that call because it came close a few times. But I, I got really between a, having an amazing person in my life, uh, Carrie, and then having a medical malady hit me. The, the combo of those two things, somehow when the smoke cleared, that obsession to want to drink was removed. I never dreamed I'd be free of that. Never. I figured if I was ever going to be sober, I'd have to really like struggle through each day and mm-hmm. holidays would suck. And like, I don't understand how I don't miss it anymore. I could be around it for hours. Really? So I, you could be I, like at a bar and people oh, are drinking yeah, and, no, and you're fine. Never do I think, oh, one of those would be nice. You know, because I feel like I really, you know, I dodged a real serious bullet and. I'm not an angel. You know, I have medical things going on and I have pain medicine that I take with a watchful eye. My doctor watches, uh, my partner watches. I'm not gobbling them like Pez. Yeah. Like I probably would have done when I was much younger and they're not leading to alcohol. And, you know, I, I have tremendous, you know, really awful anxiety at times, which is crazy. People think you're an actor. Well, you got to be really, bold and really you know i think a lot of actors are really you know really timid or sometimes meek individuals uh i used to uh, yeah i used to always say people like what because i used to be an actor and people would say why do you want to be an actor i said i like it when people look at me i like people pay attention to me it validates me blah 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 you know um you know artists we artists we're, we're crazy uh and i'm crazy enough that i sit in rooms with brent so, yeah. Uh, so, wait, you said that you had a medical malady. So, and you've been sober for over 17 years, which, by the way, uh, congratulations to that. Thank um, you. Seriously. Um, what was your medical malady? 2006, I had, uh, within a six-week period, I had back-to-back congestive heart failure, which Jeez. was, oh, my God. Like, when you have congestive heart failure really badly. It's, it's, it's like a, it's a, it could be a death sentence, you know? Yeah. Filled up with water and my heart was really weak. And underlyingly, I had a, I had a really bad arrhythmia underneath all that. And, um, they pulled me through once. Then it happened again, like in two weeks. And I met a heart doctor. I was very fortunate to be blessed. I'm going to name drop him because I love the man. And if you are in, 
you are on the East Coast and you need any type of electrocardiology, Dr. Atul Prakash, the man not only saved my life, but he gave me a quality of life, but he really cared about me. And I w- I didn't understand why necessarily, because a lot of the other doctors were backing out when they heard what a lunatic I was. You know, not a lot of doctors want to help a guy who's, you know, a hardcore alcoholic and drug addict. But he had empathy for me and he stuck with me. And we made it through a bunch of years with medicine and procedures. And he got me just about as stable as anybody ever could have dreamed. Actually, far more. The prognosis was I wasn't supposed to be as stable as I am now. But I am, thanks to all of those procedures, which are called catheter ablations, and the medicine. And I have the ICD, you know, Iron Man. Mm-hmm. I got the thing in there. If I if my heart gets wacky, I get a jolt, which isn't pleasant. First two years, I had the thing. It went off like 24 times. I was like a lab rat. I'd be okay, like brushing so my hair. You know, is, that, is it, um, it, it shocks your heart back into rhythm? Is that what it's doing? Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, I rarely saw them coming. Sometimes I knew they were coming. A lot of times I didn't know they were coming. And, you know, it's, it's boom, it's the paddles, flash of blue light, yelp out like a little girl. And um, so the first two years were horrible. But there was no drinking in that. I it's just like after I toyed with it in the beginning, I was leaving an emergency room mm-hmm. on foot with the device, going to the bus stop in Passaic, New Jersey to go home. And there was a liquor store and I got a bunch of airplane bottles. And I'm walking down in the street in Passaic, bump, 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 boom. I thought I stepped on something or tripped on something like a like I stepped on an electrical wire or something. Yeah. Like boom, the thing went off. And then I took a moment and I said, Oh wow, that's my device. But yet I felt like really Do you feel cool. better after that happened? Oh, oh, listen, if your heart's flying, if you got Buddy Rich, <laughs> you know, Danelli or Carl Palmer in your chest, and then boom, you just bump bump. Bump, 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 bump. Oh. So you, so that happened. You realized what had happened. You felt better and you just kept drinking that first time? Yeah. Um, tell me, uh, what was it? You say Buddy Rich, the great jazz drummer. What 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 was your heart like when it wasn't dun, 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 dun? You know, what was that like? Oh, God. It, well, the thing is, uh, I, have, I have a myriad. I have a potpourri of arrhythmias. There's AFib, which yep. is very common. Mm-hmm. And AFib is uh, anything atrial is aggravating. The potential for fatality comes from the possibility of a clot. But the the, the atrial uh, flood of FIB uh, isn't always necessarily connected to things that are fatal. It's more a quality of life thing, which you have no quality of life. You're out of breath. You walk five feet. It was like a mile, and you you know it's like there's a it's like there's a uh, a fish out of water on your chest, yeah. and uh, but it would you know the AFib would literally be you know like like just insane yeah. yeah and then I would get bouts of flutter, which flutter feels normal because it doesn't really have the sense of arrhythmia, uh-huh. but it's double time. Like now you're in double time. So but it's, it's, yeah. it's like, it feels like your heart's racing or your heart literally is racing. Not literally. Your heart literally is racing. Like resting rate is in the sixties, which is most people. Mm-hmm. And it would be like 120, but it would feel like it's beating normally. So oh. that, you know, that wasn't pleasant and it was weird in its own way. And then when you have, talk about, ventricular, you know, the VTAC, that I had a few times. And that's the stuff that sudden death is made of, which is why they gave me the, the unit. When your bottom chambers get funky, that's really dicey. And why you, is that? I guess because they're so much larger with bigger pools of blood in them. Okay. And if they really F up, you're probably done for. Okay. Yeah. It might be more, it might be more of a functional thing 
Then in the upper chambers, which is a more of an electrical problem, you have an electrical problem, you know, like you have these rogue sparks going, which is what uh, a lot of a arrhythmia is. It's rogue electrical sparks in the heart and the ablation blasts your heart and actually scars it to where it blocks off bad pathways. That's what the nature of what ablation is. Yeah. I was going to ask you to describe it. So you just did. And how many times did you have catheter ablation in your heart? I had about seven that were really successful and done well. Wow. There were a couple others that just didn't go all that well with other doctors. They were either done on the run or, you know, they were a favor to a favor to somebody, believe it or not. I mean, and they just didn't go well. But the ones with my main heart guy, they all see, you don't see, you don't, the, the thing about it is you don't really see the progress that quickly because the longer the scars form, that's when those rogue paths will be blocked. So it's not an overnight thing for a lot of people. People who have it in a what they call lone AFib, where there's no other heart problems, they could be cured by one ablation. But somebody who had the myriad of heart problems I had, it took a host of those ablations. Did, but I'm very thankful. I mean, it, it's gotten much better. Do, uh, now, did you have heart issues and arrhythmias when you were a kid or, or was it? Did it show up when you were later? Was it exacerbated by the drugs? Well, definitely yes to the last thing. Um, I wasn't told until like my early to mid-20s that they detected some kind of congenital. I was told it was congenital, that there was some kind of thing going on rhythmically. And at that point in my life, it was kind of benign. I didn't feel bad effects from it. They would take my pulse and my blood pressure and they would say, hey man, your heart's wacky, but if you didn't tell me, I wouldn't have known. So there's me drinking and drugging in those states, just definitely abusing the heart in ways I didn't even realize at the time. And then as time progressed and they got it, you know, they, they figured it out more. Yeah, it was, um, I would stop going. I mean, I'd go to the emergency room for withdrawals and because I was either alcoholic overdosing or, you know, whatever, end up in leather restraints. And then instead of going to the detox ward after a while, after a couple of years of this merry-go-round, they had to put me in the medical unit because the heart started to get so bad. So you couldn't just detox in the regular detox ward. I had to go in a medical unit, get all hooked up, and they would have to get my heart right. And you know, I'm getting sober at the same time. Um, God, I went AMA so many times out of those kind of places. It's just insane. It, again, I, against medical advice? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I was in once and not long after Clerks was released. It had to be in 95, 94, 95, 96. And they had me up in the heart wing and I'm all hooked up, you know, clothes are there next to me, hooked up, IVs. And I'm starting to feel like uh, I got it. I need another bottle. What am I going to do? So, and <laughs> clothes, fire exit simple Simon was around the corner from Bergen Pines County Hospital. Uh -huh. I got a couple of fifths of brandy. Go back. I went back to the hospital. <laughs> I guzzled them in the parking lot. And my plan was I was going to sneak back up into my room. And put the IV and everything back in. It never got that far. They, they had me committed and I woke up in leathers restraints. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that was a real good plan, right? Oh, and not bad. Brandy, you know. No, I'm just uh, kidding. Yeah. Uh, but you, leather restraints, like would, when you would get there, would you just be refused help? Or why, why, why would that happen? You know, the bottom line is you're just a drunken asshole. And I wasn't 
I rarely was I ever violent to other people. But, you know, there's a lot of yelling and screaming involved. And once you start having the DTs, you're begging to either give me something or slam me over the head with something. Yeah. Like I literally, I, I, there were times I ran my head into the wall because I wanted to just be knocked out. I couldn't take the withdrawal and the shaking and the seeing things and don't know what's real. I saw Christ in my coffee mug. I think that's one of the poems in my book, but I saw Christ's face in my coffee mug. That's some good coffee. That was, yeah, that wasn't great. You know, I mean, or some people would say that's great. I don't know. I, but <laughs> some people would be very excited. Well, I guess if you're sober and you see that kind of thing, it's nice, but. Yeah, I, I don't. In the retelling now, all these years later, I'm, I'm not really trying to be funny, and I'm sure it's not because it's not funny. And there's a lot of people suffering right now as we speak, who have a brother, cousin, friend, husband, wife, daughter, father, sister, mother, brother, who are. They don't understand. How could they keep doing this? How could they keep doing this? Why do they keep drinking? And it's just a miserable, horrible, sick thing. And I don't wish it on anybody. Yeah. But, and it, well, I, I want to say too, to give, to give you uh, a lot of credit here. I mean, you know, we all deal with, with painful things like this. Now I know that I deal with the most painful things in my life with, with very dark humor, things of that nature. You know what I mean? And I, you're not, you're never coming across as belittling the addiction or, or, or what it does to people. I mean, I think that's very clear. I think it's very brave what you're doing to come on and, and, you know, using that blunt honesty to, to talk about it the way that you are. So I just wanted to say that for sure. Well, great. And I'm, I appreciate, I really appreciate you saying that. And I would not want to come off like it's just foibles and buffoonery. It, I, I think I get exhausted. I, I get so excited about it now because it's by this grace that I've been given, it's really in the rear view. There are times I like, I'll have little flashbacks of things I've done and I will like shiver and shudder and think, I, I, I can't believe I did that. I, I I can't believe I lived through that. I'll get like a little jolt of a memory of, you know, <laughs> they're endless. It's four in the morning in Harlem. Or I saw a guy go out a window or get thrown out a window in Harlem. I, I thought he was passed out. I didn't know he was dead. And they just tossed him out the window. I mean, you can't have stiffs in the crack house. You don't ask questions. It scared the shit out of me. I saw a guy get shot on Christmas Eve. You know, you, it was uh, me, but what happened there? I was a group of us running out of the crack house and we were all running up the street. And this one group got far ahead of us. Uh huh. I think the group that was ahead of us had stolen a lot of crack. Oh, and that was it. It was just, psh, psh. and like, I literally saw a piece of the guy. I, I maybe it was his jacket. But like a piece of his shoulder or a jacket went flying. He fell down to the ground, but he got up and got out of there. And, you know, I drove home and did my sick thing with my stash. But, you know, at any one of those times, I mean, I got jumped in a hallway in Harlem. I thought it was the end for sure. What happened there? Well, I had, we were doing a photo shoot with the band I was with. So I'm all dressed up, you know, in like cool guy, rock and roll regalia. Mm -hmm. You know, I got the chains and vest, goatee. Probably had a turtleneck on and whatnot. I don't know. <laughs> hey, why not? Yeah. Well, you know, it was, a, it, was, it was that time. There were certain looks. It's kind of like the rattle and hum era. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm tuned up and I've got a pocket full of money and I'm up there in Harlem and I'm walking with the boys down the hallway, like I probably did a million times. And they were in front of me, which was normal. And But then this happened so quickly. As we're walking, they're kind of dropping back. Now they're kind of like side by side of me. And I'm like, well, as soon as I knew it was weird, it was too late. One drop behind me, grabbed me around the neck, literally lift me off the ground. 
I'm screaming. I figure it's over. I'm just waiting to feel a knife or a gunshot. But luckily for me, they just wanted the wallet. So they punch me in the face and I go down and I'm screaming and they throw my keys. I see my keys like, you know, hockey pucking down the the hallway. I grab my keys. I'm freaking out. I got in the car. I tore ass out of there so fast that I blew, um, I blew um, a rag. It was a radiator belt or fan, like a fan belt, belt? Or, or an alternator belt. Uh huh. Like it's you know burned right off. Wow. Got home. Went to the local pub, and sat there. You know my face is like now like this. And nobody questioned it because it was that kind of bar. It was a real low end, seedy joint. And as the, and I'm not in there ten minutes, and a giant fight's breaking out there, and I'm just <laughs> so happy to be there and drinking. I want no part of it. And like chairs are literally sailing over my head. And uh, I mean, it was like surreal. It was like Popeye. Yeah, well, that also makes me think of. Um, I saw an interview with Bukowski once for. He talks about this bar he went into, and I don't even remember where it was, maybe Philadelphia, New Orleans, somewhere. And the first time he went in there, there was just fights, these so many fights. And he called it beautiful violence. And then, like, for two years after that, he kept going back, and there were no fights, and he was very upset. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I love Buke. Oh, the Buke is the man. You know what I lived to see that is was something I kind of had a weird... I guess, attraction to, uh, and this is all while, while I'm writing too, because I did a lot of writing throughout my addiction because it was like the only thing I could really do. I didn't function well. I couldn't, I really couldn't play music after a while because I was too high or drunk, but I could write down my thoughts and feelings. That's how the book came about. But yeah, I ended up, we're going to come back to it, but what's the name of the book? Because it's a great title. Uh, Vicious Dogs Attack Me in Sleepless Nights of Summer. And that's the name of one of the poems, actually. So, that's a fucking solid title. Sorry, but go there ahead. Was, um, there was a bar in Pasek that would open up at like 5 a.m. Because Pasek had wacky hours for that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you're sick from the night before, if you could make it to 5 a.m., you get to this bar, a couple shots of beer, and now you're okay. But literally, we'd be at the bar and the door would swing open, and it's like daylight, like, bam, broad daylight, and, like, people going to work and kids going, kids going to school, like, daytime. Mm-hmm. But you open that door, and just like, wow. You know, we were like vampires. Oh, it's amazing, man, that there's people who are living that right now, and it's far more amazing I somehow got out of it. How often, and maybe this isn't a fair question, but like, how often were you able to be like, Jesus Christ, what I'm doing right now is, is crazy. Like, or, or was it, did it just become normal? Well, that's, that's a sad thing about it. I mean, it does start to become, you get, you know, every time you push the envelope, you do get kind of like a new normal for yourself. And I don't know at what point I really knew my goose was cooked, but that didn't matter. Like I, I didn't have the fight in me that I think it required to really get sober in those earlier years Mm -hmm. because of how miserable I would be sobering up. And um, I I take very little, I, I do, I take very little credit for my 17 years of sobriety now, because I don't know how to explain it, but if, if once upon a time you were driven, driven to eat peaches, but peaches turned you into a lunatic asshole and made you sick and made you not function. But you, if all of a sudden you just didn't give a shit about peaches, it would be a freedom you didn't know was there. And this is what's happened with alcohol. I mean, literally somebody would, and I'm not, I'm not trying to make a weird omen here, but unless somebody tied me down and beat me and poured it down my throat, I, I have no interest in it. I don't want it. I could smell it, be around it. 
after a few hours, if somebody's really a drunken idiot, then like anybody else, I kind of get really put off and turned off. Mm -hmm. But I have not. And this is a blessing. And I hope it never comes back because one of my fears is someday I'll wake up and that voice is going to say, oh, man, a glass of wine would be nice tonight. That's like the last friggin' thing I ever want to hear in my head again, because that glass of wine will go to a bottle of wine, to a bottle of vodka, to a bottle of turpentine, to a pile of crack, to dead. And with, and with my medical condition now, it probably wouldn't take much to put me in the ground. I could never break my partner's heart like that. Mm. I love her dearly. She's been through too much. To drink would destroy her and me. It's just, I'm blessed because I don't have to deal with that. Oh, God, I know what people are going through right now. And I, my heart breaks for you out there if if you're hanging on by your fingernails. But hang on. It, folks, hang on. They say these things in the in the recovery circles that you don't think are true, but that miracles can and do happen. I know I got some kind of blessing of a miracle. Because I was not going to stop on my own unless they put me in the ground. Yeah. Well, so, and you were doing, you know, you were working as an actor and you would, um, you do your shoots usually. And then tell me what you would do once you, once you got paid. Like for well, the film. You know, yeah. Well, see, thanks to, um, thanks to clerks and, uh, the blessing that Kevin Smith liked my audition had me come back to read from the script and cast me. And then the movie becomes this thing that nobody could have seen coming. It became the very thing. I think like, you know, not only did Kevin's dream come true, but I know mine did, you know, I wanted to be a recognizable character actor. You know, if I got a lead role, great. But if I just was a sidekick or, why, you know, even scumbag number two. But if he has lines, that's great. Uh You know, I I wanted to work and be like Harry Dean Stanton or a lot of the character actors I grew up loving who became leading actors. All those cats, Pacino, Hoffman, uh, De Niro, those guys started off working off of a certain character charisma because they were not what Hollywood would call leading men. Right. You know, but they worked their way into that and they changed the industry in the 70s. Nicholson. So, I, you know, in the 90s now, we had independent film. It was really exciting, man. And then Kevin hits the lottery with the cinema gods. And it's the indie darling. And I was able to get a lot more auditions off the back of that movie but they it was mostly non-union so i didn't go to sag i stayed non-union i'm still non-union i'm eligible but i get more work in a non-union world than i would in the sag world although you know now i'm not sure what the right move would be i thought about doing it but now that i still pick and choose and mm-hmm. i'm back to music being my main thing and the acting again it's piecemeal but i would get back to what you asked me i would get independent contracts you know where it was x amount of days and i would get paid in cash after the martini shot now what's that martini shot is the last shot of any movie the actual last shot we are wrapping and going in the post this is the last shot so boom you know, if I was on set the day of the martini shot, then I got paid in cash that day. If not, I made out another agreement. But, you know, cash in hand is the worst thing for any insanely addicted person. I The cash barely got warm in my clutches and I was down on the Lower East Side, you know, doing my thing and whooping it up and going on some kind of blacked out binge. But that's what happened. And uh, I'm just lucky to live to tell. I really am. Uh, how, you know, 
How long, when you say blacked out binge, like this would be days at a time? Yeah, they worked their way up to days at some point. At one point, too, towards the end, like I knew the jig was up with drugs because I couldn't do that charade anymore. I just physically couldn't run the streets looking for drugs and trying to find money for more coke and whatever. And alcohol was cheap and it was right around the corner. And towards the end, that's what I succumbed to the worst. So, but I mean, alcohol binges could last days and days and days. Drink, black out, pass out, come to. Drink, black out, pass out, come to. Uh, you know, it's it a horrible, horrible cycle. And my poor mother, my poor mother. I mean, I lived at home for a lot of years that she saw that shit. She, so and, she saw you... Going through these these binges or, or yeah yeah, and then a lot of time I wouldn't come home, which didn't make her feel any better. But um, yeah, it was bad bad stuff, man. I mean, I anybody suffering, I they've got my prayers and thoughts, and for what my prayers are worth, I it's a horrible horrible circus wheel, man. It's just. Worst thing ever. I, is it just like that you, and again, I'm not trying to be flippant here. Is it? Is it very close to, you just, hope is so far in the rear view mirror that you just have no hope that it's going to change. And so you just continue to do as you're doing. And you, you don't even feel you have a choice? You mean with actively drinking? Uh, yeah, like where, um, when, you're, when you're in having these long binges and, and really have a problem with alcohol. Well, you know, a lot of the binges, uh, at first they're fueled by cocaine. Because when you do blow or crack, forget about it. Crack's the most evil thing on the planet. But, you know, smoking coke is just kiss everything goodbye, man. I mean, you know, you're off in the stratosphere before you even exhale that shit out. And then, you know, so. Ears ringing and whatnot. It, so you're, it's, it's just. Then you'd never want anything but that kind well, of thing. You chase that for you could chase that for hours into days. Yeah, you know you you want that first hit back. That's that's what a lot of the drug coke is. I mean, everybody's chasing that first good high, and it never really happens. Yeah, but that to come down off that crap, it took mountains of alcohol, and when you're already an alcoholic, you know mountains of alcohol becomes lethal amounts of alcohol you know so you do the math on that and none of it's good it's not leading anywhere very good but um again i am one of the most grateful people i know and i I, that doesn't sound very humble but i'm being humble i do have tremendous gratitude on my worst day now because my life is not some kind of cakewalk you know i i I live a very modest life. It's a very blessed life because I got to do things as an actor and a musician that I dreamed of as a kid. But that doesn't mean I'm sitting on a mountain of money and, uh, you know, I have no worries. I have a lot of worries. But alcohol ain't one of them. And holy hell, when that's not haunting me, even my worst day, it's just not nearly as bad anymore. How how do you deal now with um you know you the racing thoughts or or where you get really anxious about things because I, I assume that you still have anxiety et cetera like how do you deal with that now? Well, I you know I do have medications that are being watched by my doctor and by my partner that when things get extreme and you know day day three or four or whatever without much sleep. And that race in mind, I will take a Xanax. And if I'm having a panic attack, I will take a Xanax. Mm-hmm. But I'm, you know, I'm in a very controlled, a very, it, it doesn't lead. You know, it's crazy. 20 years ago, one or two Xanax, I would have been at the liquor store. It took very little to open that door back to the booze. By God, yeah, by, by grace, it's not happening. So the medication in proper, you know, used properly does help. Now, I won't say 
if you have anxiety and you have panic attacks, all you can do is medicate it. But I'd be lying if I said that the sedatives don't help. And they have a twofold quality of they don't feel half bad, you know. <laughs> so I, I kind of feel like you almost feel like you're getting away with one, you know, like yeah, you're negotiating, right. you're negotiating it, a little bit of something. Same thing with the pain medicine. I mean, I'm in terrific pain with my back, my shoulders. I dislocated both shoulders throughout my drinking. Ooh. I fell off the roof of a second story hotel back and balcony onto the hood of my own car. And I didn't spill my drink. But, you know, my, my shoulder was like, my arm was behind me. Oh, my God. You know, so my body's been beaten to hell. So, yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking down the barrel of 60 years old. I've got a lot of pain and a lot of it's just old injuries haunting me. So I do have some pain meds for that. But again, nothing goes off on some crazy rip and bender and uh, ends up with me completely able to function. Mm -hmm. And it's just a blessing. But the booze is non-negotiable. I haven't had a drop in 17 years. What was your last drink? Ha! Was a white Russian. Oh. Yeah. It's funny. They say most alcoholics will remember. And I do. I, I really remember. Because I really remember the jig being up. Because all of my health things had caught up with me. And the feeling I was getting was... It was a different thing somehow after I had the heart failure and the taste of the white rush, excuse me, the taste of the white Russian. And I just knew it was over. It was 4th of July, 2006. Uh, so you say the taste of it and like, is it as simple as like you took a drink of that and you're, and it was just like, I, I can't do this anymore. Is that what you mean by that? I just gotten out of an emergency room. And somebody had picked me up who was trying to put this as delicately as possible. They thought they were being a help, excuse me, a helping soul, but they were really helping me to do whatever I wanted. Mm. Enabling. Right. Yeah. Um, so at the bar, white Russian, Barely sobered up from whatever brought me into the emergency room to begin with. But I just, something clicked like this is not working. And now granted, alcohol stopped working for me in a good way a long time ago. But the buzz was what I was craving. And once I went into that dark buzz, I, you know, all bets were off. But something this was time was different. It was just different. And I was a full-time heart patient. And uh, I remember Carrie saying to me, my mother had died in 2004. And she saw that I was starting another binge. And I just looked at her. I had the bottle. I. She said, I'm really afraid something's really going to go wrong this time. And I was like, full of tears. And I said, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, the one person is gone now. And I never meant that. I see now that that could be very cutting for her. But she knew I was talking about my mother. But sure enough, that was the congestive heart failure binge that somehow sent me on a big journey with my heart, but a very sobering journey, which you know something, you know, congestive heart failure has been very good to me. Yeah. Uh, it's like uh, baseball has been very good to Sammy Sosa. There you go, man. I just heard that on Jeopardy. Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I, I used to say, you know, congestive heart failure has been very, very good to me. Um, well, I, when, when did you meet your partner? Oh, it's we we go back quite a ways now. Uh, it wasn't long after Clerks came out in the theaters. Oh wow! Uh, okay, yeah. Well, we have a long history of being in each other's lives. Uh huh. Always being 
a partnership, but being good, good friends. And I wouldn't trade that for anything now. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, And I love her with all my heart. She's been through a lot worse with me. And that I feel terrible, but I just feel blessed that she's still in my life. And I have now the ability to move forward and try to make her life the best I can make it as the best partner I can be. I wouldn't even have thought like that back in the old days. I was a really selfish guy. And my father was an alcoholic womanizer. And my mother was a loner. And I really thought that was my destiny. Then you add booze and drugs to the mix. And I figured I'm just going to die in some low-income housing place, you know, probably with a needle in my arm or a bottle of uh, paint thinner and who knows what. People that don't have most of their teeth. And that's where I thought it would end. But I got blessed with things that I could only dream of back then. So anybody suffering out there, please hold on. Please hold on because you don't know. Where, you know, Lenin said, where there's life, there's hope. I got to go with that. And I had some pretty hopeless days. So just hold on. Hold on, man. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, that is a very true message. Uh, and I think it's a good place to wrap up there. And, you know, as we're wrapping up, Scott, I, I have to thank you again for being, again, as we talked about at the beginning, so honest about all the stuff that you went through. I mean, obviously not all of it, but what we've discussed today. Uh, and so willing to come on and be vulnerable about these things and be so gracious about, I, you know, how many times you've talked about how blessed you are and how you are so lucky and, and this weird grace that you have, as you call it. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Um, as we're wrapping up, is there anything else that you want to say, share, anything at all that you maybe didn't get a chance to say uh, during during the, the discussion? Um, well, you know, a lot of the dark details now that we've covered, most of the dark details may not be necessary. I want to talk about some positive things. I do want to thank all of the View Askew supporters and all of the people who are Kevin Smith heads because they gave him a career and he helped give me a career. And it did open a lot of doors. It closed some, but that's how, that's the nature of mm. any career in acting or music. It opened far more than it closed. For every three people that love him, there's five that hate him. You know, that's life. But um, to be part of a movie that has transcended time and generations, you can only dream of that kind of thing. And I got to be a part of that. Got to recreate that role not long ago in a crazy sequel. And as a result, I got to be in a lot of really interesting independent films. I worked opposite some pretty cool named people over the years. You can all see that on my IMDb or you go to my Facebook or you go to my uh, Instagram. I'm very accessible. Please reach out. I enjoy uh, getting to, because my career is what I call grassroots. I can afford some time to really engage with a lot of the folks. The conventions have been amazing. Got to meet people that I was, you know, I grew up watching on TV and in movies and you know, some surreal moments. And so thank you one and all who support those movies and that music and, and the things I've worked on and uh, keep on keeping on, man. You got it. It's so important to, I found as I've gotten older, especially in my relationship, first of all, nothing is more important than being kind to other people. You don't know what they're going through, but it's far less important to be right than to be kind. And that took me forever to learn. You know, if you're in a head-to-head, butt-head thing with a friend or somebody you love, I mean, if every ounce of your being believes you're right in that argument or instance, the real challenge is to let that go. You know, it's not always so important to be right, because that's where a lot of these crazy arguments lead to road rage and the state of where we are with politics. And 
I've lost a bunch of friends, kind of, not lost death, but friends have drifted apart just since 45 was in office. And I never knew a lot of these people were even, like, I never picked, my friends were never about, my friendships were never based on politics, religion, or money. It was about what movies do you like? What music do you like? What books have you read? And we go from there. But man, we are in a crazy place right now. So just be kind to one another, man. You don't know what somebody's going through. And everybody's going through something. That is the fucking truth. And uh, to to pick up on another thing that you said there, uh, uh, keep on keeping on, I'll just add, like a bird that flew, tangled up in blue. Um, Scott, thank you so much, my friend. I've really enjoyed this discussion, and um, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story with us. Well, you, you're very welcome, and I thank you for having this type of forum. There's a lot of podcasts, and we have fun, but they kind of stay light and fluffy. It's rare you go this dark or deep. <laughs> but, you know, you know, it's it's a good thing to do once in a while. Yeah, um, it, indeed. And, you know, it is produced by one of those Kevin Smith heads, uh, as you said. Uh, to let everybody else know, I told you this already, Scott. Brent has the um, Jay and Silent Bob plans from Mallrats Framed. Uh, at his house, which is fucking awesome. Um, And I will, uh, again, thank you to you, Scott, and thank you to everybody for listening, and I'll close the same way I I try to close every episode, uh, which is very reminiscent of what Scott was just saying, um, and that there is always room for kindness and grace, uh, even with ourselves. Uh, I forget it every day, but just a reminder that there is always room for kindness and grace, and we'll see you next time on Sad Times. Mm -hmm.